We're continuing in Colossians. Wives get to rest today. Husbands, they have the fun. Uh, we're picking up in verse uh, 18 in chapter 3. This, of course, is the household code. Uh, this is uh, to re- basically to reflect and apply what we've been talking about already, um, about putting off the old man and putting on the new, but within the context of relationships in addition to the church. So a little reminder for us there. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would grant us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. Help us to know the riches of your grace and wisdom. Help us to believe what you say to us. Help us to do what you tell us to do. That we might be like those building their houses upon the rock. So use this time, these words, to accomplish your great purposes in us this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, Steve Brown said to me, I was asking him questions about writing and being published and being an author and all that fun stuff. And he said that essentially um, when you're trying to break into publishing, you have to write things that people will want to publish because they know it will get, it will sell. So you have to pick subjects that are common. And if you actually have the luxury of being a well-known, successful author, then you can publish on the things that you want to write about. That was disappointing to me at the time because I had things that I wanted to write about that no one else wrote about. So I kind of waited. And then when I was going through a marriage uh, series back in Florida, I decided now is the time. I should write my book. I'll write a book on marriage. And I remember the idea that as I was thinking, preparing for this ser- the, that sermon series, that I would uh, kind of call the book Love and Respect. Because I, I kind of viewed that from, a, from Ephesians 5 as, as uh, the, the, the woman really needs to know she is loved and the man really kind of needs to know he's respected. I kinda... And so there I was one day in a Christian bookstore and saw a new book titled Love and Respect. <laughs> Out the window. Anyway, here we are, you know, over a decade later, or almost a decade later, and I... Uh, Gave my manuscript to somebody who was interested in looking at it. And uh, so that was months and months ago. And so I finally got the word back. And what I heard back was, it reads like one long rambling sermon. 
And my first thought was, of course, it's collected from a series of long, rambling sermons. And you know, it just sometimes we think we're better at something than we really are. And that's not just writing or preaching. It's really often about relationships. Sometimes we think we're a better spouse than we really are. And occasionally someone has to wake us up to reality. And in a sense, Paul is trying to stir the men up to reality to remind them that perhaps they're not the greatest spouses that they think that they are. Our big idea, however, is that Christ is the redeemer and example for married men. You're going to have a a great day today because there's only two points to my sermon. Isn't that awesome? It's reflected in the text, so here we're good. And so the first part of how Christ is the redeemer and example for married men is that Christ marks marriage by a man's sacrificial love. Last week, we, we focused on what he said to women, to the wives of, of the church in Colossae. And, and marriage is far more than identifying who's in charge. It's a lot greater and more important than that. How those people in charge lead is incredibly important to the stability and health of a marriage, particularly among Christians. At that time, the paterfamilias, was one who, the husband, the father, the patriarch of the family, he was one who exercised great power over the family, and we'll kind of explore that in weeks to come. Um, And unfortunately, I cannot use the term paterfamilias without thinking about, oh, brother, or art thou? Because that was the whole point of the movie, of the story. You don't find this out till near the end, but... Everett Ulysses McGill escaped from prison precisely to reclaim the rights and responsibilities that he had as the pater familius because his wife had a suitor who was bona fide. And so, you know, we don't think in those terms of the pater familius. It's very different from our cultural understanding of what a husband is, but it was very familiar to the audience, the, the, the original audience of this letter. They understood what a paterfamilias was, and that was, in fact, part of the problem. Paul is going to say something that is incredibly countercultural for them. What he, what he said to the wives was not very countercultural, but what he's about to say to these husbands is incredibly countercultural. Paul affirms the role of the husband as the head of the family, but he says something that no one else would have said at that point in time. Husbands, love your wives. He's establishing an incredibly different view of wives. Now, this is what I struggle with sometimes because I read people who, who often, I think, completely misunderstand Paul in many ways. And the term that is used, the accusation that is often made against Paul is one of those terms that, you know, is meant to strike fear into the heart of all man, misogynist, that Paul is a hater of women. And it's similar to what we find with regard to race now. 
um, and other kinds of things. You know, to, to throw out that one word and try and cow, make someone cower into submission to your viewpoint. In a sense, a lot of people try to throw that out so that, you, that we will not really reckon with Paul as he needs to be reckoned with. And we as conservatives, however, need to reckon with what Paul says here. Husbands, love your wives. Paul loves women. When he says this, often the men that day married for two reasons, status, offspring. It wasn't because they had their, that their wives made their hearts go pitter-patter. They didn't go va-va-va-voom. That really wasn't a part of marriage in that time frame. And so really when a man wanted to feel those things, he usually often unfortunately went outside of marriage for those things. And so... There was a lot wrong with marriage in Paul's day. They also treated their wives in many ways like property. They were at their disposal. They had no rights of their own, generally speaking. And many men abused their wives, as many men also just sort of were absent from their wives' lives. They were not engaged. Women were often tolerated, but they were not treasured. But Paul has a very different view than the people of that day and of that culture. Love. We've talked about love before, particularly in the context of earlier here in chapter 3 of Colossians, and we kind of defined that as a passionate, self-sacrificing commitment to the well-being of another. And in this particular case, that other is a wife. And so a husband is meant to display a passionate, self-sacrificing commitment to her well-being. That's going to be my operating definition of love as it pertains, particularly in this instance, a husband for a wife. And so instead of tolerating a wife, husbands are meant to treasure and to sacrifice for their wives. We see this as well, kind of drawn out even much farther and in more detail in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, which we read already this morning. And I could think of two examples right away from church history of men who really treasured and sacrificed for their wives, one of whom was B.B. Warfield. If you were in the Sunday school class in church history, you heard about B.B. Warfield. And one of the things that's significant about Warfield is that he and his brand-new bride packed up, went to Europe, and while they were in Europe, she was struck by lightning and was paralyzed the rest of her life. Now, a lot of people would have bailed on that marriage. It just started, and all of a sudden, now I'm married to a paralytic. He was faithful to his wife. He could not leave her bedside for more than a few hours, and so he structured his ministry around that. He, he made sure that his classes were close enough and of the right duration so that he could get back and care for his wife. She wasn't alone too long. He shaped his life and sacrificed some success for his wife, instead of just abandoning her. Another man that comes to mind is Robertson McQuilkin, who I don't know if any of you have heard of him. He's not as famous as B.B. Warfield. But he was the president of Columbia, Columbia University or Seminary in Georgia. Anyway, around the time I was in seminary, he made the news in evangelical circles because his wife became very ill. She was declining. And he resigned his position 
as president of the seminary, to stay home and care for his wife. That's sort of unheard of. Most guys would just hire somebody to come in and take care of her, and he didn't. And that's a display, I think, of, of what Paul has in mind for this sacrifice, this commitment and passion and zeal for the spouse that God has given you. And so this is exactly the opposite of lording it over, which is what the paterfamilias in that day often did. They lorded it over their wives. Paul had something very different, and not lording it over, but, but choosing in her best interest. And so when a woman is married to a godly man who takes this seriously, she, she has a, a greater level of confidence. Remember, her confidence ultimately is supposed to be in Christ to work. Okay, um, And so submission to a husband is, is supposed to be framed within this context of, I trust Christ, I may not always trust my husband, and that's okay. Jesus will deal with him. But also, there should be a, an added measure of comfort when there, the husband actually does stop and make his decisions based on what is best for his wife instead of what's best for him. And that's what Paul is saying. When he says, love your wives. Yes, it is that word, agape, that we find. In Ephesians 5, one of the things that Paul talks about is that if we, not only does it mirror the, the love that Christ has for the church, but the love for a husband is, is tied to the, our love for our body. And if we're united to one, one another, then it only makes sense that we should love our wives because they are a part of us. And so is in light of that that John Calvin said that no man can love himself without loving his wife. Therefore, the man who does not love his wife is a monster. That's very countercultural. That's very different. And again, John Calvin's one of those people that people would say, misogynist. But do you see, when we stop and we read what they actually say, it's so very different. I think Paul Tripp, in a sense, says it better than I could say, so I'm going to quote from him at length for a moment from his book, um, What Did You Expect?, his book on marriage. Love is willing self-sacrifice. There is no such thing as love without Sacrifice. Love calls you beyond the borders of your own wants, needs, and feelings. Love calls you to be willing to invest time, energy, money, resources, personal ability, and gifts for the good of another. Love calls you to lay down your life in ways that are concrete and specific. Love calls you to serve, to wait, to give, to surrender, to forgive, and to do all these things again and again. Again, the opposite of lording it over another person. A few uh, sermons ago, when we talked about love, I talked I, Gave the quote, I think, from Paul Tripp as well, that love loves to love. And Amy will, will probably testify that there are times when I say that to myself in an unhappy voice. 
<laughs> because I'm not, at that moment, I'm not loving, loving her. We struggle, guys, to love our wives. And in fact, that's probably a lot of what this is here for, to reveal the reality that we're much better at loving ourselves than we are at loving our spouses or anyone else. We struggle to love them, I think, in part due to our sin, in part due to our weakness, and sometimes due to our ignorance at times. I'm going to look at these briefly, I think. Remember, I'm long and rambling. Sin. Augustine is the, the first one who, that we know of who coined the phrase, although it's also been used by Luther and C.S. Lewis, as, as man curved inward. That, that sin has, has bent us over so that we're you know, like belly button gazers, I guess. You know, we're, we're always concerned about ourselves. We're not looking out towards others. We're kind of turned in upon ourselves. And in that sense, we are self-centered. It could be as simple as saying, man, I saw those Twizzlers on the counter. They're mine. Okay, so none of you have any of those Twizzlers that are on that counter during refreshments today. No, eat them freely. Uh, but, you know, that's my heart. My heart kind of wants to think about me and not think about other people at times. And we're all sort of bent that way. The first thing we usually think about when someone brings something up is how does it affect me? That's a sign that we are curved inward. Now, Christ addresses this when, as it says in 1 John chapter 4, this is love, that he loved us and gave himself for us as an atoning or propitiatory sacrifice. And so Jesus deals with our guilt, the fact that we fail in loving other people, particularly our spouses. And so part of the good news of the gospel is, is that when I, when I realize how pathetically poor I am at loving my spouse, I don't have to give up. I don't have to run away. Though, my, though I might feel like that is the best option available to me, that is not what I have to do because there is such a thing as Christ forgiving me for my failure and, and enabling me to press on and try again. Okay, Every day is a new day. I, I'm reminded of that as a parent. We'll get to that in a few weeks. Um, <laughs> you know, his mercies are new every morning. Okay? So, the gospel enables us to kind of remain in that relationship and remain engaged in that relationship despite our past failure so that we, you know, keep trying to love better than we loved yesterday. Our weakness. There is nothing like marriage and parenting. Family life that reveals our weaknesses and throws them in our face. And as men, don't we hate to feel weak or incompetent? And yet marriage is one of those places where we will feel weak. You know, that moment when she starts crying? I don't know about you, but those are some of those moments when I just don't know what in the world to do. You know, because sometimes I started that. <laughs> I don't know how to fix that. It reveals that there are things in life that we can't fix. We can't make right. You know, when, when your, your spouse is suffering in a particular way and you can't fix it, that is, you experience that weakness. And we as men tend to try to run away from weakness. 
but marriage invites us into that very place of weakness. Because it's only as we willingly live there that Christ, our Creator, who is unlimited in His strength, begins to supply us with that strength by virtue of our union through the Spirit with Him. He who is who has the fullness of God dwelling in Him, remember that all of that stuff we talked about earlier in chapter three. Where now we're united to Him and we have the fullness of God ourselves. He He grants us strength out of that, but it only happens as we experience the weakness. Paul experienced this himself. Second Corinthians chapter 12 talks about that thorn in the flesh, that weakness that he, he asked that it would be taken away from repeatedly, but he declares in verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That sounds like bad news in the sense that I don't want to experience weakness. And yet Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so guys, we all have weaknesses. We have baggage from the past. Not only have, have we sinned, but we have sinned, we have been sinned against, rather. We're victims too. And so we bring all of this baggage into our marriage. Our weaknesses are exposed. And when they are, we have a hard time loving our wives. But Christ strengthens us in our weakness if we turn to him. I mentioned thirdly, ignorance. Some of us don't know really what it was like to be loved well. Either we didn't have parents who loved us well, or we've been in a number of abusive relationships, things like that. There's just ignorance and misunderstanding as to what this is. And some of you, when I say love, might go, huh? What is he talking about? And so there, there are some who struggle because they don't know what love really looks like. Again, Colossians. We have, we are a holy nation, beloved. If we're beloved, that means we have been loved. The Father has loved us. And He loved us by sending the Son to die for us. And He loves us by sending the Spirit to dwell within us. He has loved us well. And so if you're a Christian, you have been loved well. Just not by the people you thought would love you well. We are to look to Christ and His loving ministry, as Paul points out in greater detail in Ephesians chapter 5, to see kind of what this love looks like. Okay, He is not only our Redeemer, but He is also our example. What is it that He did there? Well, He laid down His life for the bride. And so again, that, there's that idea of sacrifice that comes into play. He washes her to make her holy by the Word. Wait a minute. Holiness is a part of marriage? Yes. We're focused on happiness in marriage. God is focused perhaps a little more on holiness in marriage. And so part of how God makes your wives holy is through you guys. 
as you bring her to the Word, whether it's um, you know family devotions, things like that, family worship. That is one way in which you can bring her to the Word, and, and it's one of the means by which God begins to work by the Spirit to, to make her increasingly holy. And sometimes it's just freeing her up to get out of the house and do something. Before we got married, Amy loved Bible study fellowship. And if you talk with Amy for a long period of time, you realize she still loves Bible study fellowship. She's probably invited half of you to go to Bible study fellowship. And, you know, when we were newly married, actually newly parented, okay, what's going to happen with Jane? She's too young to partake of the children's ministries there. Sacrifice. I'm carting the daughter to work, <laughs> which, because of virtue of, of what I did for, you know, for my vocation, I was able to do that. And so Amy was able to go and have a free morning and, and be able to study God's word and pray with godly women and be encouraged. You know, while I sat there and, you know, changed diapers and did feedings and let her do naps and let her, and played with her a little bit while I was trying to get some sermon stuff done. That's an example of what it means. Those, those are two, two kinds of things by which we, in, we engage in that process of the holiness of our wives. We see that Jesus inconvenienced himself, and he eventually died for the church because he was seeking the best for us. And so we're continually seeking what is best for our wives. And some of that is only discovered, again, as I said last week, as we listen to them. We have to listen to them. doesn't mean that everything they say is gospel truth, but we begin to hear their fears, their concerns, their joys, their worries as we listen. Anyway, long rambling. Christ, through the gospel, gives men the capacity to sacrificially love their wives. Secondly, men must guard against a bitter, destructive spirit. Paul continues to transform the husband's role as the paterfamilias with a prohibition. See, there was the positive command, love your wives, and now here's the positive command, don't do this. Okay. Similar to what we saw in Malachi, you know, he said, love your spouses, the wife of your youth, don't divorce them. And so you see that, that there, divorce was set in opposition with love. And divorce in that particular instance meant doing violence. You were putting on the robe of violence. Instead, they were to love. Well, in this instance, Paul is saying, in addition to that, do not be harsh with her. Why are we harsh? Sometimes because we obsess about our authority, our position, our plans, our desires, all of those sorts of things. What was interesting about this is that this is a passive verb, although it is essentially translated as an active thing. And so really what they're getting at or as, high, as I'm thinking about this, Paul is addressing the heart. Don't be embittered, whereas the translation tends to go to the action that flows out of that embittered heart, which is harshness. Okay, are you following that? Yeah, you know, Paul's really addressing the heart, but but the, the translation is more focusing on the actions, because the paterfamilias often was very harsh, not just with the children but also with the wife. Hebrews warns us about this bitterness. In chapter 12, 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, defined as that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And so Paul also would, would, I think, just agree with that completely in the sense of when bitterness is allowed to fester in the heart of a man, what happens is that it causes trouble within the relationship and it defiles both him and his wife and their children. It is very important to guard against this bitterness, this bitterness, lest we become harsh or completely withdrawn from our spouses. When we are embittered towards someone, we tend to act harshly, and this is amplified in marriage because, you know, in other relationships, aside from the family, you can get away from them. You know, especially in our culture. If you don't like somebody at church, you just go to another church. Uh, you know, if you, if you don't like your neighbor, if you're going to be bitter towards your neighbor, you can always just peek outside. Is he around? No. And in Arizona, they're never outside, so it's okay. You know, then you, that's when you go get your garbage or you check your mail or whatever. You know, you see someone in the store, you can go the other way. But with marriage, if the person you're bitter towards is the one you're just having to sleep next to every night, it, it gets amplified. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. You have to come face to face to that person. So you have to deal with the resentment and the bitterness that may exist. Why would we, who love our wives, be bitter towards our wives? I could think of a few reasons. Her sin, her weakness, our sin, and the decrease we experience in freedom. As we think about this, I want you to think about something one of my professors, Dr. Roger Nicole, said to us early in our, my seminary experience. And um, some of these guys, it was too late because they were already married. But guys like me, it was early, so it was good. A good wife will double your ministry. A bad wife will cut it in half. So you're saying, be very wise about who you marry. Because that person you marry will affect the environment in which you try to do all that you do. And so, guys, you're only part of the equation in your marriage. She's the other part of the equation. Remember, you're your biggest problem in your marriage, but she might be a problem too. And and some of these are ways that she can control and some she can't. But our resentment, which is focusing on us, often arises because of her sin. Wives will sin in many ways, and that can sometimes make life amazingly difficult for the husband. It can make it difficult at the home. It can make it difficult outside of the home. If your wife is a kleptomaniac, you'll have legal bills. Okay? Any of these sorts of things. So your wife will sin. And many of her sins will just have to be forgiven as a result of love. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 4 it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. There's going to be some sins that they're going to, she's going to commit that you just don't even say anything about. You just forgive her. Move on. Proverbs 17 says that whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. I think it recognizes the fact that when we keep bringing something up, 
it tends to separate the relationship. So there are many things that we'll just forgive, but there are things because we're married, we've got to talk about. But the problem is, as I've mentioned before, the inner lawyers. You know, your inner lawyer gets involved. They've sinned against you. All of a sudden, you're like upset. Your inner lawyer starts to point the finger. You do this. You do that. One of the jokes in our marriages, our marriage is that I don't put anything away, and she never closes anything up. You know, and if every time I saw an, a door left open, I got upset, we wouldn't be married. Same thing with her. If every time she saw a book I left out on the table, she got mad at me, I'd be dead now because I'm always doing it. <laughs> okay? You can't make a big deal about everything. But you have to recognize the patterns of sin, particularly the destructive sin. Now, her leaving doors open is not a big deal, I think. doesn't need to be addressed when it pops up. But there are things that, do, that are destructive that need to be addressed. But as Paul says in Galatians 6, they need to be addressed gently. Brothers, if someone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so, guys, when, when we are seeking the, the holiness of our spouses by, by bringing up their sins so it can be repented of, we need to do it gently. Not in the heat of the moment with harshness and the pointed finger but gently. Not only is it her sin, but it's also her weakness. Just like us, they will have frailties. They will have limitations uh, due to genetics, due to family of origin, due to experiences that they've had. They will have these limitations, and sometimes these limitations will ruin your plans and thwart your desires. And so we are to bear with our wives Bearing their burdens in love instead of resentment. One of the things about Amy, I'm picking on Amy. That's because she's the only, only spouse I have. When she's sick, she tends to just try to plow through it, you know? And so there are times when she's sick and I just kind of ignore the fact that she's sick because it doesn't really affect anything until she reaches the breaking point. And then <laughs> I've usually noticed that too late <laughs> because that's when she's upset. Because, And now she needs help. She's exhausted her reserves. She is weak. And now I have to come in and, and help. And one of these times when this happened was almost a year ago, the week of the presbytery meeting. I was excited to be going to a place I hadn't gone before. What was it? Albuquerque? I don't know why I was excited to go to Albuquerque, but I was. But I like going to Presbytery, not for the meetings themselves, but being able to just sit and talk with the guys and, and uh, relax with some of them, get to know them a little bit, talk about ministry and things. So I had my heart set on going to Albuquerque of all places, and now all of a sudden, at the last second, I can't go to Albuquerque. I was probably resentful for a few days. <laughs> yeah. But that's, see, the, the weakness interrupts our desires and our plans. And how are we going to respond to that? Are we going to bear with their burdens in love and fulfill the law of Christ, as Paul continued on in Galatians 6? Or are we just going to hold on to it and be whiny for months on end because of it? Ooh. Not only that, but there's your sin, as we kind of mentioned before. I don't want to go over that too much, but... 
Sometimes she is going to be the messenger about your sin. She is going to be the person who lets you know that there's a problem and there's always the danger of resenting the messenger. Okay, that's all I'll say about that right now. And then there's the loss of freedom. You see, we men are a little bit different than our wives. We like more freedom. We like to be able to go hang out with the guys. I'm not saying you can't go hang out with the guys. But marriage does tend to shrink our lives. We cannot enjoy all the things that we want to enjoy. Sometimes we have to watch a chick flick instead of the big explosive movie. Life gets shrunk a little bit. I remember I used to play a lot of basketball before I got married. Don't play much basketball anymore. That's because someone at home actually wants to spend time with me. Don't know why, but she does. So there's a loss of freedom, and some guys have a hard time with that, and they become resentful of the wife because she represents that loss of freedom. Martin Luther used to joke about his wife, Katie Von Bora, and call her the nickname Katie, which we, but it means little chain. Right? He said it playfully, but she was the one that sort of, you know, he was on a short leash, so to speak, now. He had to think about her whenever he, he began to take on a project. It wasn't just he, him by himself doing whatever it is he wants to do forever, how many hours he wants to do it. He had to think of someone else. And so wives limit our freedom. As we think of all of these, we need to recall, I think, of how Christ treats us as men in our sin, in our weakness, in our demands. When we see his gentleness towards us, when we see his patience towards us, when we see his mercy towards us, then I think we are better able to extend mercy instead of resentment to our wives. The gospel softens our heart so that we're able to extend grace to them. All right. The ancient world, kind of like ours, is marked by abusive or absent men. Things haven't changed that much. But Christ transforms marriage by transforming men from selfish and bitter into selfless and gentle. As our Redeemer, He removes the guilt of our abuse or absence. But He is also our example in how He has loved the church. And so we see that gospel grace changes how we live as married men. And this can be summed up in that command to love. Because you have been loved. Do you get how much you have been loved in Christ? Are you relying on Him and His love in the midst of your weakness? Are you seeking to grow in consistent love towards your wife? These are the places where Christ is at work in you by His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, this is one of those messages that I don't like to to preach because I feel my own unworthiness to say this, because I know my own failures. But it is your word. It's not mine. It's about what you call us to, not about what I might live.
So be with us as men as we deal with that sense of recognition where things need to change. Help us not to hide. Help us to face it and seek your grace in changing and addressing it. Be with the wives this morning. That they would be patient with your work in their husbands instead of demanding that it all happen tomorrow or yesterday. Be with those who aren't married. That they would recognize what it is you are working in them regardless of their marriage, their state. Be gracious to us, Father. In Christ's name, amen.